Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. back to the beginning. You know, I heard, uh, actually it was a politician who said this uh, at a gathering of, of conservative leaders. He said there was a uh, discussion among three professionals. There was a, a politician, an engineer, and a surgeon who were all debating about whose profession was the oldest. And the surgeon said, well, mine is the oldest. God took a rib out of Adam and created Eve, so at the very dawn of history, you needed a surgeon. My profession is the oldest. And the engineer said, oh, no, no, mine is older than that, because before he created Adam and Eve, he created you know, the planets and the stars and everything, and scripture says that first there was a great chaos, and God brought order out of chaos, so you need an engineer to do that. Then the politician spoke up and he says, no, no, I, I've got you both beat. My, my, my profession is the oldest. Because who do you think created all the chaos? <laughs> well, there's a lot of chaos out there. And yes, a lot of it can be traced to the political leaders. A lot of it can be traced to those who are given that awesome responsibility of governing. I had a marvelous opportunity back four years ago, four and a half years ago now. You remember what happened in March of 2010. Obamacare was voted into law by the United States Congress and then of course signed by Obama himself. The United States Congress had a vote on that health care, that Affordable Health Care Act, on a Sunday afternoon. So we have a lot of church-going believer, Christian believers sitting in the United States Congress. You know, the interesting thing is you don't hear so much about these men and women on the news. There's a, there's a small minority of our elected, uh, federal elected uh, lawmakers a small minority of them get the most of the headlines. They make the most noise, they make the most trouble. They're loud mouths, some of them. And, you know, they all like to hear themselves talk. So it's an occupational hazard among the politicians. So, but you've got a lot of people serving quietly day after day who, believe me, they are as strong believers as we are. One of the things we do in conjunction with some of our evangelical friends is we have these pastors' briefings in Washington We'll get together a room this size and bigger of all pastors, and we'll bring in these men and women who are believing, practicing Christians, serving in Congress, and they'll stand up in these podiums, and they will give their witness, and they will inspire these pastors to do what? To say, if we've got men and women in this legislature who are like that, I've got to go home, and I've got to help my people elect more of these kinds of people. That's the ideas that really motivate these pastors by bringing, bringing them face to face with the legislators who don't make the headlines, but who are there nonetheless 
trying to serve the Lord. So back in March of 2010, on the Sunday that the uh, health care bill was voted on, the churchgoers said, well, we want to have church. You know, we have to, bad enough that we have to be here on a Sunday for this vote, but we're not going to miss church. So you know what they did? They had church right in the Capitol. Statuary Hall, if you've been in there, you see all the different statues. They turned it into a chapel. And this actually goes back to the early history of our country anyway. They used, it for, they used the Capitol for church. So we had church. And I got a call um, some days before, and they said, Father Frank, would you come down and preach? And I said, I'll be there. <laughs> I had to adjust my schedule a little bit, but I said, I'll be there. To preach to members of Congress and their staff on the day of the health care vote, I'm not going to miss that opportunity. So I went down there, and uh, here's part of what I said to them. Scripture calls public servants ministers of God. Paul's letter to the Romans. Ministers of God. It's not just we in the clergy who are ministers of God. Those sitting in the legislature, those sitting in the governor's office, those sitting in the White House are called by Scripture ministers of God. In what way are they ministers of God? They're not leading worship services. They're not preaching sermons. They're, how are they ministers of God? They're not administering the sacraments. They are sharing in God's act of governance. They're supposed to be sharing, not in creating chaos, but of bringing some order out of chaos, of keeping civilization from falling back into chaos. They are appointed to guard life, to guard freedom, to guard justice. They participate in a participatory way, just like parents of a family participate in God's creative act of a new human life, so those in public office participate in the governing authority of God himself. You know, the church, just, just sit back for a moment and think about how the church views civil government. Do we say yes or do we say no to the power, the authority, of civil government. And of course, the answer is we say both. We say both yes and no. We say a yes because scripture again acknowledges that all legitimate authority comes from God. So if you have legitimate authority exercised by civil leaders, we have to obey that in as much as it is a just law or it is a just order or ordinance of some kind. Of course we have to obey it. We have to pay our taxes. We have to keep, uh, abide. We have to be law-abiding citizens. So we say a yes to the state. But we also say a no because we never recognize it as our absolute loyalty. In other words, yes, we will follow the laws. But if the laws of man contradict the laws of God, well, then we do what the apostles said. We will obey God rather than men. So we have a loyalty to the civil authority, but it's not absolute. Our absolute loyalty is only to Jesus Christ and to the Father, God himself.
So we have this simultaneous yes and no. We say a no in the sense that we recognize that no earthly government, no matter how well organized, no matter how faithful in securing justice, peace, and life, can ever fulfill the longings of the human heart. God, as Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So no, there's no such thing as a utopia or a perfect system. So we, say, so we say a no in the sense that we don't put our full hope in civil government or politics. Now having said all this, so first, so first of all, I, I said to these uh, men and women, I said, you, you know, you're considered servants of God. I said, and here's why and how that's true. Because you're serving the people that belong to God. The people don't belong to you, they belong to God. And you're serving them by protecting their rights. And in so doing, you're serving God because he's the one that gave them those rights. You're ministers of God. And then I pointed out to them how Christianity has transformed politics. Do you realize that the very fact that we have a representative form of government comes from the incarnation of Jesus Christ? How is this possible? In the pagan view of government, the king is the law. In the pagan view of government, the law proceeds from the mouth of the king. So he can get up in the morning and without having received any input from anybody, he can say what is the, de de the decree of the day. Nobody knew it was coming and there's no recourse against it. This is what you would mean by a, a, a nation of men, that, it was the, that the ruler is the rule. The standard is whatever the ruler says. Well, that means the people don't matter. He has authority over the people. And Jesus brought this up as an example. He says, he talked about those in authority who lord it over their subjects. And then he said, it shall not be that way with you. You will serve. Because if in pagan government the ruler just rules and the people's voice doesn't matter at all, when Jesus Christ comes, what does he do? He makes us sons and daughters of God. He opens wide open the road to heaven. St. John, I love that verse in Revelation, it says, I looked up, John says, and he, I saw an open door. You realize what he's saying there? You and I can look up and see an open door. We don't believe in a God that we have to sit back and wonder what he's thinking. We believe in a God that we, has told us what he thinks. We don't need to wonder, is God on our side? Is he for us? Is he against us? Does he love us? What does he want us to do? How does he want us to live? And what happens after we die? We don't have to wonder about those things. We know those things. We are a religion of revelation. So we look up and we see an open door. The word of God, the word of the prophets, Jesus himself, the revelation of the Father. We know the mind of God. And yet, it was not like that for the other nations. Israel would always say, the prophets would say, Blessed are we, O Israel, for what pleases God is known to us. What a blessing in life that is. So, Jesus Christ opens the way to the Father, and then he makes us his sons and daughters. He doesn't only tell us what God thinks, he shares the very life of God with us. So now we are adopted sons and daughters of God. We, as St. Peter says, share the divine nature, and so guess what? People matter now. 
They matter even more than they did before. They're, if they can go directly to God and say, Abba, Father, well then what does that do to their relationship to the king or the president or the governor or the congressman? Well, it changes that relationship. Because if they're sons and daughters of God, who's the congressman's boss and the president's boss, well then the congressman and the president and the king and the governor and the judge no longer have full authority over those people. They become their servants. So Christianity itself transforms power into service, transforms authority into submission to the God-given rights of the people that they serve. That's why scripture calls them ministers of God. And that's why they safeguard human rights rather than editing or deleting them. And this is the idea on which America was founded. We live in a nation that wasn't, didn't come about primarily through geography or ethnic descent. This is a nation, the only nation, brought together by an idea that indeed there are God-given rights, we know what they are, and that as our Declaration of Independence says, governments are instituted to secure those rights. Not to edit or delete them, but to secure them. Well, this is a monumental concept. So I spoke to those legislators and their staff about these very points. And brothers and sisters, these are the points that we need to speak to ourselves about and that we need to use in order to remind our fellow citizens of the privilege we have in this country as we come now upon another election. Does our voice really matter? Does our vote really count? And we have some beautiful teaching documents in the church about all of this. I want to refer you to, first of all, and here's where we can start to use these, uh, these cards. Living the Gospel of Life is a document, let me go back. This was issued in 1998 by the American bishops, but they issued it in 1998 because of a document issued three years earlier for the whole world, which was which document? The Gospel of Life, the Evangelium Vitae, issued by St. John Paul II, March 25th, 1995. Why was it issued on March 25th? The, the, yes, the Annunciation, which is actually the Incarnation. So Christmas and Annunciation, Jesus is conceived on March 25th, born on December 25th, liturgically speaking, is what we're observing. But really, I mean, the separation of the Incarnation by the Annunciation, Mary's fiat, and the birth and nativity at Christmas is really only a matter of emphasis. It's not a matter of disjunction. Both feasts are celebrating the same reality, the incarnation. March 25th with the emphasis on the conception and December 25th with the emphasis on the birth. But in reality, as you study the history of liturgy, you find out we're talking about the same thing. And that's why there are only two days of the year when we say in the creed he became man was made flesh, was made incarnate of the Virgin Mary only two days of the year that the liturgy calls for us to genuflect at those words. And those two days are March 25th and December 25th. Now, the Evangelium Vitae, therefore, the Gospel of Life, the most comprehensive statement that the church has made on the question of abortion, and in fact, 
The document utilizes the language of the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Church that describes when a teaching is being proposed infallibly and definitively. It uses the very same formula three times to talk about the fact that innocent human life may never be taken, to talk about the fact that abortion is always wrong, and to talk about the fact that euthanasia is always wrong. This document is issued. That means this coming March 25th is 20 years. That's important, and I want to let you in on something that hasn't even been announced yet, uh, but I had some meetings over in Rome just very recently with the people who are putting this together. Uh, the 20th anniversary of the Gospel of Life is going to be marked by a worldwide observance, a vigil the night before, uh, prayer service for life in Rome. And the Vatican is going to ask that dioceses and parishes throughout the world have ceremonies like that of their own on the same night. So worldwide, on the vigil of the Annunciation this coming year, 2015, we will uh, honor life, preach life, and reflect on the teachings of this great encyclical. So I want to ask you, first of all, if you haven't read Evangelium Vitae or you haven't read it in a while, one of the best things you can do between now and March 25th is read it. And not only read it, but study it. And we have a study guide to Evangelium Vitae that was put together by our staff. Now the resources I'm going to talk to you about, you can find everything at priestforlife.org. But if you want us to send you the study guide, you can make a little notation on the card. We'll send it to you. Great activity to do between now and the anniversary that's coming up in March. But then three years later, our bishops in the United States issued a document called Living the Gospel of Life, which applied the teaching of Evangelium Vitae, especially to the American uh, situation. Now, one of the things the Pope said in Evangelium Vitae, and remember, now that he's canonized, all the writings of John Paul II now become the writings of a saint. So they take on, if you will, even more weight. You know what he said about a state, a government that authorizes the killing of the innocent like the babies in the womb? He didn't say simply that this is a bad policy. You know, there are a lot of bad policies that we can say, oh, they're pretty bad. Hopefully they'll change, but in the meantime, we have to obey them. Sure, there's a lot of policies we have to obey that we might not like, that we might not agree with, and that we even try to change. We might even think they're big mistakes, and they might be. But the authority that made those bad decisions still has the authority to make them, and we still have the duty to obey. Court decisions like Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton that legalized abortion throughout pregnancy are not in that category. Laws that reinforce those decisions are not in that category. They're not in the category, friends, of a bad decision that was legitimately issued and that still has to be obeyed. They're in the category of a decision that the ones issuing it did not have the authority to make and that do not have a claim on our obedience. Let's understand the difference. The church looks at Roe v. Wade. The church looks at laws allowing abortion, whether it's in our country or in any other country. And it does not say this is a bad law or a bad court decision. The church stands up and says, this is no law at all. This is no decision at all. It has no authority. And therefore, we not only don't have to obey it, we must not obey it. 
That's the depth of the church's response in the legal slash political arena. It is not a question of simply a bad policy. What John Paul II said in Evangelium Vitae is no less than this. The nature of the state changes when it allows the killing of the innocent. What does he mean the nature of the state changes? The state no longer becomes the common home where everyone is protected. It loses its identity as that common place of protection and instead in the, he says, in, the, in a tragic caricature of democracy, one group ends up oppressing another. And he said, when that happens, the state has become a tyrant state. A tyrant state. And he says further, the disintegration of the state itself has then begun. And it is the death of true freedom. These are all words from the encyclical. So when you look at this as the stance of not only the church, but the stance of scripture to, I mean, laws that, 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 that allow violence are not laws at all. They're violence. And so when you look at this as the stance that the church takes, then if you go one step further and start translating it into, okay, well then, what are, what's the importance of an election? And where do these issues stand in the mix when it comes to evaluating the candidates and the parties? Because friends, you know, and sometimes we get into trouble for saying this because people say, oh, we're being too political, we're being too political. I tell priests that speak about this from the pulpit. And to say, look, when you go to make a, a participate in an election, which of course in and of itself is a duty, and the bishops going back to living the gospel of life, 1998, we also have a study guide to that document, which you can ask us for, we'll send it to you. Living the gospel of life, they say very clearly, every voice matters in the public forum, every vote counts. That's the exact quote that the bishops say in that document, every vote counts. Well then, where in the hierarchy of issues is the legality of abortion. Does it matter what a candidate says about the legality of abortion? Well, it sure does, because here now, we're not just talking about where do you stand on a particular issue, or where do you stand on the legality of a medical procedure. Based on everything I've just said, when you ask a candidate where he or she stands on the issue of abortion, what you're really asking them is the following question. What kind of government do you think we have and what kind of power do you think we're giving to you when we elect you? Isn't that a deeper question? Where do you stand on this issue? What do you think about that issue? Where do you stand on this policy? What do you think about that court decision? No, 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 no. You're asking for our vote. Okay, why? What do you think you're getting? What authority do you think you're getting if we elect you to Congress, or if we elect you to the Senate, or if we elect you to be the governor, well, what kind of authority do you think we're giving you? Do you think we're giving you authority over life and death? Do you think we're giving you authority over our human rights? Do you think we're giving you the right to take our rights away? What do you think we're doing? What do you think you're doing? The first qualification for public office 
is to know your place, is to have the humility to realize the limits of your authority. And I say it this way, and I tell the priests to preach this in the pulpit. We need to elect public servants who know the difference between serving the public and killing the public. And if a public servant doesn't know that difference, he or she does not belong in public office. Now, can we say that from the pulpit without getting in trouble with the IRS or losing tax exempt status? Absolutely yes. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. It's perfectly legitimate to say that. It is nonpartisan to say that. Because you know, under the current arrangements, with the IRS, which is more and more being revealed as a corrupt organization and should be abolished altogether is really where we need to go in this country. But the point is, whatever they may have done or not have done or whatever their authority is, under the current rules, the church agrees in her institutions and organizations actually like us, the Priests for Life and not-for-profit organizations agree that you know we will be a tax-exempt organization and part of what you give in return is that you agree not to directly or indirectly intervene in a political race. So we can't get up and say, vote for John Smith, vote against uh, Joe Smith. Okay, but what I just said does not violate that prohibition. Why not? Why is that not intervening in a political race? Well, it's very simple. People might say, well, Father Frank, you're saying that no pro-abortion candidates should not be elected, so that means you're helping the Republican candidate and you're hurting the Democratic candidate. And my response is, yeah, you know, if people live without what I'm saying, then much of the time it does end up helping the Republican candidate and hurting the Democratic candidate, but whose fault is that? Is that because of what the moral principle is that I enunciated, or is that because of the positions that they take on the issue? If tomorrow, and here's the test right here, here's the test. If tomorrow the Republican and Democratic parties swapped their positions on abortion, if tomorrow candidate A who is today pro-life and candidate B who is today pro-choice suddenly switched and A became pro-choice and B became pro-life, tell me what changes in my message. Tell me what words that I spoke yesterday I'm not going to speak today, or what words I didn't speak yesterday I am going to speak today. Now if I'm partisan and I'm saying I'm on a campaign to elect Joe Smith, well certainly, certainly you can do that as, as citizens, as individuals, as groups. Of course, nobody's saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just that a not-for-profit organization agrees not to do that, but the point is, if, I, if my message today is elect Joe Smith because he's pro-life and then tomorrow he becomes pro-abortion, yeah, my message changes if he swaps his position. But if my message is we have to elect public servants who know the difference between serving the public and killing the public, and I say that today and tomorrow they swap their positions, guess what? The next day I'm going to say exactly the same thing because it's a moral principle. We've got to get out of this self-censorship nonsense that's going on. I talk with pastors all across the country, and believe me, they're afraid of their own shadow when it comes to talking about this stuff. They don't know where the lines are drawn. It's one of the things we help them to understand where these lines really are legally. And brothers and sisters, there's a whole lot of people out there, unfortunately, in the institutions that we have in the church that are simply making excuses. They don't want to deal with the criticism that comes 
from sounding a little too political, even if they're being completely nonpartisan, even if they're just quoting from living the gospel of life. I've, I've, I've had situations where I've just quoted from living the gospel of life and people have told me, oh, yeah, you're just re supporting Republican candidates. Says, well, then, you know, you're not criticizing me. You're criticizing a whole conference of United States bishops because they wrote the darn document. They don't criticize me. I'm just quoting them. But you see, when you take it out, of, you, 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 you know, you just, re you just look at the words, words themselves. We've got to be free to say this stuff. The problem is not that our, the churches are becoming too political. The problem is that our politics is too pagan. And when politics become pagan, if Christians don't speak up about it, who will? How in the world do we change pagan politics into politics that respects human life and dignity unless we actually go in and change it? And you do it by speaking and voting, educating and voting. Okay, now, let me go... We talk about church documents that talk about the responsibility. So Evangelium Vitae lays the basic foundation. Living the gospel of life applies it to the American situation. But I want to talk also about the last encyclical that St. John Paul II wrote. Anyone remember what the topic of that final encyclical was? The Eucharist. It was about the Eucharist. And you know what he said in there? One of the things he said, very beautiful and very unexpected, if people, if people were to say, oh, what would he put in an encyclical about the Eucharist? Yeah, we could think about many different things. But at a certain point, he says this. He says, the Eucharist is eschatological. When we're adoring the sacred host, when we're seeing the host elevated at mass, did you ever think of the fact that we're looking into the future? Because what's going to happen at the end of time when Christ comes back? Scripture says, we will have a new heavens and a new earth. The whole world will be transformed. The whole universe will be transformed. And the Second Vatican Council spoke about this in Gaudium et Spes, a document that John Paul, back at that time, had a big part in, uh, in, in writing. Gaudium et Spes talks about politics. And it also talks about the advancement of the kingdom of God, and it distinguishes between human activity and divine activity. How much does God do? How much do we do? But the Pope said, well, look, when you look at the Eucharist, you're looking into the future when the whole universe will be transformed into perfect unity with God. And therefore, in adoring the Eucharist, you get a motivation to hasten the day when there will be the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what can we do to hasten that day? God has his own timetable. He's coming back when he wants to come back. But he also urges us to pray, come Lord Jesus. And so the Pope says, it's not just his work. His work is to also choose to make it our work. He involves us in the process of making a better earth, a more just society, a culture of life, and a civilization of love. He involves us in the process. He gives us things to do. Well then, the Pope then makes this statement in that final encyclical. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, our faith in the Eucharist therefore calls us to take more seriously than ever before our duties as citizens on earth. He's linking Eucharistic devotion with political involvement. 
Because he says that's part of how we transform society and bring it closer to where God wants it to be. Again, there's no way that any political system or any political leader can bring about a utopia on earth or can be our salvation. Politics is not our salvation. Christ is. But when we embrace Christ as the Savior and he begins living and working in us, then that necessitates an involvement in trying to improve the world. We cannot exempt ourselves from that process any more than we can exempt ourselves from trying to raise our children the right way. We are necessarily involved in the battle. So what happens? Well, it's like what happens in the Mass. And let me use this as an, as an example. We, how do we, when we go to Mass, we're going for the Eucharist, right? The sacrifice and the sacrament. So we want to receive the body of Christ. So friends, where are you going to get the body of Christ? How do you get the physical living Jesus on, here on this earth? How do you do it? Well, we go to the Mass, right? And what do we need? What do you need in order to get Holy Communion? Well, you need a priest. But then, what does the priest have to do? I mean, I can't just stand here right now and, okay, body of Christ is about to come down here, right here and now. Why? Because I'm going to call on the Holy Spirit and he's going to come down. It doesn't work that way. In the Mass, we have the offertory procession, don't we? And what happens in the offertory procession? People from the congregation, representing the whole congregation, bring up the bread and wine. Why do they do that? I mean, what's the purpose of that? Why doesn't the priest just have the bread and wine up there? And sometimes he does. Just have it up there next to the altar and, you know, get on with it already. Come on. No, no. We bring it up from the community. And why we do that is reflected in the prayers that the priest says when he lifts up the bread and lifts up the wine to God before consecrating it. What does he say? The prayer says, it thanks the Lord for the bread thanks the Lord for the wine, and then says that this bread is the fruit of the earth and what? Work of human hands. Listen to what we're saying. What is the wine? The fruit of the vine and work of human hands. That's why it's brought up from the congregation, representing the congregation, because the congregation is saying, Lord, we've done the work. We tended the vineyards. We sowed the wheat in the, in the fields. We harvested the grain. We did hard work. We crushed the grapes. Somebody put all this together. Somebody broke the bread, baked the bread. Somebody sold it. There's a lot of, imagine all the work that goes into this. And so the offertory procession and the offering of the bread and wine are representing a whole lot of human effort. But then we say, it's the fruit of the earth. God had a hand in bringing that about. We, we can't make, we can plant the seed, but we can't make it grow. Paul talks about this. God gives the growth. And similarly then, therefore, when we're at that altar, we can't go there empty-handed and say, okay, body of Christ, come on down. But neither can we take bread and wine, and no matter how hard we've worked, we can't turn it into the body and blood of Christ. So it's both joined together. Work of human hands and divine intervention. Politics is messy and it's hard and it's monotonous and it's frustrating and it's monotonous again and it's more frustrating again and it's more hard. Seems to get harder every time. But brothers and sisters, 
that does not allow us then to say, okay, Lord, you've got to fix this one. This is too messy. There's nothing I can do. I'm going to sit back. I'm just going to wait. You know what? Come, Lord Jesus. I'm just going to wait for the second coming. You know, I hear a lot of people talking this way. Oh, my goodness, another election. You know what difference does it really make? They're all crooks and bums and corrupt anyway. I don't, want, I don't like any of them. and I'm not motivated by any of them, and that may well be true. And, and it's like, but, but then I don't want to participate. Well, yeah, but you know what? Somebody's going to be elected. The fact of the matter is the sun is going to rise tomorrow. The fact of the matter is it's either going to be sunny or it's going to be rainy. The fact of the matter is someone's going to be elected. And do we have a role to play in that? Obviously. They get elected based on how many people vote for them. And so this is where our responsibility comes in. We cannot fix it ourselves. Of course not. But neither does that mean we wait back and just sit back and do nothing and let God come to fix it. It's both. Think of the offertory procession. Fruit of the vine and work of human hands, and then the consecration, it's both. Can't have the Eucharist without both pieces. We can't have a just society without both pieces. Am I making sense? Okay, so politicalresponsibility.com. I want to get very practical here. That is the website. And you can see, by the way, we have a whole program on political responsibility, a whole outreach. And on the back of the card where it says political responsibility, if this is a special interest of yours, you can mark that down. And we'll get you all kinds of special resources and, and give you all kinds of action to do. But now we're into high gear now. We're only a few weeks from the election. And you know what it is now? It's a numbers game. Let's get very practical. Politicalresponsibility.com, you're going to see in the coming weeks, we're going to put all sorts of voters' guides up there and where do the candidates stand. And then people are going to be giving out literature on the weekends before the election. And it's a numbers game. Here's what I recommend in the weeks prior to the election. You want to get the low-hanging fruit. In other words, you know, you might have an Aunt John, an Uncle Sam, uh, Aunt Jane, Uncle Sam, who, 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 who say, oh, you know, they, they, they don't agree with us. They don't know, they don't know why, you're, why you're here, you know, at Franciscan University. They don't, they don't, what, are these, what are these people doing? And, 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 and they don't agree with us maybe on abortion. Or they don't see, and they always vote, they seem to always vote in a way that we would disagree with, vote pro-abortion candidates or whatever. Okay. Do we want Aunt Jane to eventually think the way we think and vote the way we would like to see her vote? Yeah, yeah. But you know what? Start talking to her the day after the election. Now that might seem strange to say. It's like, well, wait a minute, Father Frank, she's going to vote the wrong way again. Yeah, I know. But for every hour you spend, perhaps fruitlessly, trying to convince a person committed in the opposite direction to vote for the candidate that you believe should be elected, for every hour of energy that you spend getting that one vote, there's all kinds of people that you can reach in the groups that you go to, the meetings that you go to, on your email list, on your social media, Facebook friends, Twitter followers, whatever uh, Instagram followers, whatever platforms you use, there are people who are already thinking the way you think. There are people who already agree with all the things we're saying here tonight, but they're not going to vote. Or they're not going to vote the right way. Not because it's going to take hours and hours to convince them. It may take one minute to convince them. 
What do we mean by that? Well, maybe they're not registered. There are various reasons why, even if you registered to vote in the past, that you may need to register again. Do you know what those reasons are? What are some of the reasons you may have to register? First of all, if you never registered before, the first thing you have to do is repent. And then the second thing is, you know, get the registration form. We've got them here tonight. You can register, by the way, if you're living here um, at the university, you, here in Stewartville, you can register either for Ohio, to vote in Ohio, or you can register in your own state back home if you want your vote registered with your state and, and get an absentee ballot. Either way, you can do either way tonight at the table. They're going to give you all that guidance back there. We've got experts there from the Young Americans for Freedom. But here's the point. Do you know what, why, if you registered in the past, you might need to register again? What are the reasons? You moved. Change of address. Any other reasons? If they dropped you some, somehow from the list, okay. Or a change of, change of name. If your name changed, you got married. Also change of party. If, you, if you're registered with a party and then you swap the parties, then you have to register again. Um, and various other circumstances, if, you're, uh, um, if you weren't a citizen, then you become a citizen, then obviously you have to register, uh, et cetera. So the various, there's a handful of conditions under which uh, you have to register again. And you know what? If you're not sure, find out. Don't find out. Don't wait till election day to find out. Uh, and, but it's important to act quickly on this. This is why we're doing this tonight, because in some states, the deadlines, there are deadlines for voter registrations in all but a, a couple of states where they have no deadline. But the point is that um, there's a certain deadline after which you can no longer register for that particular election coming up. So we need to make sure that, uh, you know, don't, don't put this off till the day after tomorrow and then find out that tomorrow was the, the deadline in your state if you think you might have to re-register. Let's get equipped to do it now. But this is what I mean by the low-hanging fruit. We've got votes right here in this room that unless we urge you to register to vote or maybe for some reason you're not properly registered or you don't have an absentee ballot, you're going to miss your chance to vote. But it's not because you don't agree. It's not because it's hard to convince you. It's not. You already agree. Now, you might have lots of friends who say, hey, you know what? I understand about the importance of life and protecting life. I know that we have to elect the pro-life candidates. So how do you get votes for the right candidate? You tell them who the right candidate is. Because a lot of people out there, they hear this part of the message, of, hey, we need, to, we need to, to, to elect people who have the right values. But then they say, well, then what are, the, who, what are their positions? Who are the pro-life candidates? If they don't know, that's one of the most important things to do in the next few weeks. Number one, find out yourself. And number two, tell everybody else that you can. Family, friends, fellow students, people on your social networks, everyone you can reach. Everyone you can reach. And then mobilizing people to get to the polls. One of the things I urge pastors to do is to have the parish take the people to the polls. I urge people to take the election day off from work and just spend the whole day getting people to vote. Whether it's calling them up and reminding them or driving them there or doing something. If there's people who are homebound, make sure they get an absentee ballot. Don't let them lose their vote. 
etc., etc. There's all kinds of things that we can do. Every person has just one vote, but we can influence hundreds of votes. And I ask you to think in those very practical terms now as we come down to election day. Okay. We have, let me just tell you about a couple of resources here, and then I want to start taking your questions. In accordance with what I've just been saying, there's a brochure in the back called Voting with a Clear Conscience. 10 Easy Steps. This is actually a short version of a longer booklet that I wrote some years ago. We decided to condense it into a short little booklet. 10 Easy Steps to Voting with a Clear Conscience. And I think you'll like this. It delves into some of these practical things I've mentioned already. Uh, then, I talked about, oh, a little bit about, I didn't really delve into the silent no more effort. You know, this is, well, this is helpful for politicians too. You know, they think they might be serving women by keeping abortion legal, but it actually hurts every woman that experiences it. Janet, who's our executive director at Priests for Life, she co-founded the Silent No More campaign. It's a worldwide effort, it's 10 years old now, where, where men and women speak out about the loss of their children to abortion and the healing of Jesus. She wrote a book called Recall Abortion, fascinating use of the word recall, because they recall their abortion, those who give testimony, but what they're recalling is how much it hurt them. And because it hurt them, the case we're making to the government is that they should recall this procedure, just like you recall a car that has bad brakes or food that's tainted, you recall it off the shelves. You don't want to hurt the public. So recall abortion. If you, if you believe in the power of the testimonies of these women and men, and you want to see the arguments against uh, uh, legal abortion, this is a great book. I have a book called Pro-Life Reflections for Every Day. I have another book back there called uh, Ending Abortion, Not Just Fighting It. That's a series of essays, especially on the relationship between the pro-life movement and our faith. But this book, this green book, is a devotional. A little one-minute scripture, reflection, and prayer for every day of the year about pro-life connecting that day to the theme of life. So like the special feast days and, and the seasons and everything, it connects Advent and Lent and Easter and the Assumption and uh, even civic holidays like the 4th of July, all connects it to pro-life with a little one minute meditation for each day. You'll really, you'll love it. I know you will. And then this, I'm gonna give you something that you can bring back to your parishes on the table back there. You can save someone's life today. We use this as a bulletin insert when we go into the parishes to preach. And this contains some very, very direct and basic information about abortion that really opens people's eyes to what it is, how often it occurs, how late in pregnancy it happens. It has a description of abortion, but it also has very hopeful and helpful information here because when we go into the churches, and by the way, I know you're all from, from different parishes um, and you've got your, your communities back home. If you want me to come into your parish and preach on a weekend or one of our other priests from Priests for Life, we'll come. Your pastor invites us, we'll come. And when we come, or whether we come or not, we always bring this bulletin insert, but he can just use it as a bulletin insert even if we don't come ourselves. Um, but it has hopeful and helpful information about two things that we always put front and center when we preach in the parishes on this topic. And that is, number one, there are alternatives. No abortion is necessary we will help you find alternatives. So pregnancy centers all around the country, including right in downtown in Steubenville, saving lives every day by offering those alternatives. And second, the second part of the message is there's forgiveness. 
There's healing. There's no abortion that cannot be forgiven when a person repents. I've ministered to people who've had as many as 25 abortions. And they too not only can be forgiven, they can become saints. This is a message of hope, of love, of compassion, of healing, brothers and sisters. As I've said tonight, I mean, we, whenever we talk about this issue, we're talking about some tough, sad, disturbing things, right? But it's ultimately a movement of compassion and love. And we want to let people know, first and foremost, we embrace them. We are on their side. It's abortion and the abortion industry that's against them. We're not against them. We need people to know that we're their friends. We're on their side. We want to help them. And once they know that and they know they can come to us and they see the compassion of Christ in us, then they're going to hear the rest of our message too. Even the part of the message that is often most troubling to people and that's the, the political side of it, which I've been talking about here tonight. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.